Section 25 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 9, The 45, Part 2. All this was calculated to rouse enthusiasm. More and more joined his camp, and in a few days the seven had become sixteen hundred, all animated with the same feeling of love and loyalty for their chivalrous young prince, and of zeal for his cause. No hope of gain lay before them, and any selfish reasoning would have made them stay at home. Meanwhile the English government seemed to be hardly aware of the importance of the insurrection, and were slow in taking measures against it. The general commanding the forces in Scotland was Sir John Cope, not by any means a coward in the sense of having any personal fear of danger, but afraid of responsibility, fit to be a subordinate, quite unfit to be in command. On the very day of the raising of the standard, Sir John Cope marched to meet the rebels. Heedless that this involved a march into the mountains, the English general started with two regiments of dragoons, about 1,500 infantry, and a large number of spare muskets intended for loyal volunteers who he expected would apply for arms. But the volunteers did not appear, and the muskets were soon sent back. It became manifest also that the cavalry would be of no use in the hill country, and they were left behind at Stirling. All this betrays want of information, but even without the expected volunteers in the cavalry, Cope had as many men as the Chevalier. Finding, however, that the latter had the better position on a steep and almost impregnable mountain pass called the Devil's Staircase, Cope determined, after consulting a council of war, to march off to Inverness. The general's great mistake had been made earlier. He ought never to have advanced into the mountains at all, for to do so was to meet the Highlanders on their own ground. To the council of war three courses lay open, to remain and fight, to retreat, or to turn off to the right and march to Inverness. Had the first course been adopted, the defeated Preston Pans would have been anticipated. Either of the two latter courses would give hope to the insurgents, but it may fairly be accepted that it was policy, not cowardice, that made Cope march to Inverness. Believing that many of the Scotch clans in the pretender's rear were loyal, he wished to reach and arm them, but it escaped his notice that excepting the two regiments of dragoons, he had left no troops to guard Edinburgh. These dragoons retreated before the pretender's advance, and when they were within a mile or two of the city, at sight of an advanced guard of the Highlanders, were seized with disgraceful panic and galloped through Edinburgh. This gallop was nicknamed the Cantor of Coltbrigg, the cold bridge over the Leith water being the starting point of their race. Its goal was many miles on the further side of Edinburgh. The Edinburgh volunteers were called out and gathered in considerable numbers, but on the order being given to march out of the gates, the companies were found to have melted away. When the defenders were of such a character, there is no cause to wonder that Prince Charles was able to enter Edinburgh solemnly to take possession of Holyrood Palace, give a splendid ball, and cause his father to be proclaimed as king at the city cross. Though Edinburgh was taken, the castle, which was strongly defended, remained in the hands of King George's men. The soldiers proposed to fire into the streets of the city, 
but such a course would only have done mischief and no good. Prince Charles found in Edinburgh a thousand muskets which the volunteers, having no further use for them, had returned to store, and he made a requisition on the magistrates for tents and other military appliances, including six thousand pairs of shoes. These men who had taken the capital of Scotland were many of them unshod, all badly armed, some only with a scythe or a pitchfork. Their discipline was admirable. There was no plundering, no drunkenness. Meanwhile, General Cope was anxious again to place himself and his troops between Prince Charles and England. He embarked at Aberdeen, and having brought them by ship to Dunbar, marched toward Edinburgh. The prince, ever ready for the fight, moved his army forward from the city, and was with difficulty prevented from leading the van himself. Then followed the Battle of Prestonpans. Cope drew up his men awkwardly. The cavalry, being the dragoons that had already run away, were divided, one regiment on each wing. The artillery also was divided. The infantry were in the center, immediately in front of a stone park wall twelve feet high. All along the front lay a morass which seemed impossible to cross, and for one night the two armies lay separated in this way, the Highlanders eager to attack, fretting at the obstacle, Cope anxious only for defense and glad to have the morass in front of him. During the night, however, a gentleman of the neighborhood who had joined the pretender thought of a path by which his army might be led round. In the early morning a mist still covered the whole battlefield, the Highlanders followed this path, and when the rising sun drove away the mist, Sir John Cope's troops saw to their surprise the Highlanders over against them to the east. Leaving time only for the saying of a short prayer, the Highlanders rapidly advanced, the bagpipes playing and the men yelling. The sudden attack, the strange appearance of the foe, the loud pipes, the discordant yells were enough to frighten the English troops who turned and fled. In about seven minutes, all the English soldiers, with a very few exceptions, were in full flight and in different directions. Sir John Cope tried to rally them, but was obliged to lead their hasty retreat, or in other words, their flight. On arriving at Berwick, he was told that he was the first general who had come with the news of his own defeat. Hey, Johnny Cope, are ye waking yet? is the refrain of a ballad very popular in Scotland for many years to come. Amongst the exceptions should be mentioned Colonel Gardiner, the commander of a regiment of dragoons who on the previous day had urged General Cope to take more vigorous steps. Gardiner had first gallantly, though fruitlessly, tried to lead his own men to the charge and in so doing was wounded. After the flight of the cavalry, seeing a cluster of infantry making a stand, with the words, those brave fellows will be cut to pieces for want of a commander, he rode up to them and cried out loud, Fire on, my lads, and fear nothing. But just as the words were out of his mouth, says his biographer, a highlander advanced toward him with a scythe fastened to a long pole, with which he gave him such a deep wound on his right arm that his sword dropped from his hand, and others coming about him, while he was thus dreadfully entangled with that cruel weapon, he was dragged off from his horse. He received another wound from which in the course of the morning he died. Curiously enough, the encounter took place at the gate of Gardner's own park. 
the biography of this brave soldier was famous because, having lived a gay and licentious life, he suddenly changed, becoming serious and pious. He asserted that the sudden conversion was produced by a vision of our Lord upon the cross. It is evident that Cope was not a great general, but how are we to account for the conduct of the men? For the English troops were reckoned among the bravest in Europe. They had been badly led. The men remembered that Cope marching northwards had avoided the Chevalier. They could see with the disposition which he made that Cope was not eager for the fight. The troops were too much cooped up, and there was no room for the cavalry. But the more real reason was the entire strangeness of the Highlanders. Their appearance and strange equipment, the bagpipes, the yells, their unusual way of fighting caused a complete panic. Highlanders make the best soldiers in the world for a battle, though unless under very thorough discipline they are not good for a campaign. A Highland charge is well-nigh irresistible. Nowadays English and Scotch know each other well, but then the Highlander was but little known, and his English fellow-subjects and even the lowland Scotch regarded him as a savage or barbarian. Children were concealed at the Highlander's approach for fear he should eat them. No doubt the appearance of the wild petticoat men, as the wearers of the kilt were called, was very terrible and startling to a southern. Poor and in consequence badly clad and badly equipped, they had not the look of regular soldiers. But the men were better than they looked, and throughout this trying time kept good discipline, especially as long as they were victorious. The Highlanders were very ignorant of many things which Southerns enjoyed. One Highlander sold a watch cheap because not being wound up it had ceased to go. He called it a dead beast. Others sold chocolate found in the general's baggage as Johnny Cope's salve. The story was told how some Highlanders had forgotten themselves so far as to threaten respectable citizens, leveling weapons at them, and had then only made the moderate demand for a penny. After the Battle of Preston, or Preston Pans, as in order to distinguish it from the battle in the Fifteen, it is more commonly called, though the fight was nearer to the former than the latter village, the prince marched back to Edinburgh, where he was received with acclamation. One distinguished exception was an old Presbyterian clergyman, who not only continued to pray for King George, but added this petition to his prayer, As to this young person who has come among us seeking an earthly crown, do thou in thy merciful favor give him a heavenly one. It is to Charles's credit that the septuagenarian minister was left unmolested. Nothing succeeds like success, and almost all Scotland now appeared to be on his side. The castles of Edinburgh and Stirling and the forts in the north garrisoned with English troops seemed all that remained true to King George. Those who were not Jacobites held their peace. For forty days the prince was in Edinburgh consolidating his power, organizing the new troops that joined him, levying money, and generally ordering his affairs and on October 31st he left Edinburgh on March for London. There are many who think that the prince should have proceeded straight from the battlefield toward England, as there were many who think Hannibal should have marched upon Rome directly after Cannae. This delay certainly helped the Chevalier. Had he marched at once, it would have been with a much smaller army. Whenever he held a council, he found that the opinions were in favor of delay. 
his counsellors pointed out that one defeat meant ruin to the cause. Wait for more to join, wait for help from France, was the burden of their advice, which was wormwood to the young prince. I see, gentlemen, at length, he said, you are determined to stay in Scotland and defend your country, but I am not less resolved to try my fate in England, though I should go alone. An English army under Marshal Wade was awaiting him in Northumberland, and the prince, trusting in the dash of his Highlanders, was most anxious for a battle. It was well known that Wade, once an officer of great vigor and judgment, was growing old, and had lost much of his energy. As a compromise between the prince's wish to march forward to instant battle, and the counsellor's desire to avoid a battle, it was determined to invade England on the west. In marching from Edinburgh into England, the prince had a choice of two main routes, by the east or the west coast, through Berwick or through Carlisle. Had the invasion been made by Berwick and Northumberland, an early battle with Wade's army would have been inevitable. Between the two routes, there is the formidable mountain range called the Pennine Chain, which forms the backbone or dividing range of England. The northern part of the other route was comparatively undefended, and it would have been difficult for even a more vigorous general than Wade to cross. Carlisle was the first English town to see the Highland army, and Carlisle, having a specially valiant mayor, determined to resist. But after two days, at sight of trenches and siege operations, Carlyle capitulated. Though perpetually met with advice to retreat into Scotland, the prince advanced to Lancaster and to Preston. Many of the Highlanders did not relish the march into England, and the army had already begun to display that want of cohesion which marks a Highland army. Many deserters had already dropped off. Indeed, it was reckoned that the force had diminished from 5,500 to 4,500 before Carlyle was reached. As Preston and Lancashire had been the scene of the defeat thirty years previously, the town was approached with an almost superstitious feeling that it would be the limit of the advance southwards. Hitherto hardly anyone in England had joined the prince. At Preston cheers were raised for him. At the Lancashire towns that were just beginning to be the seat of the cotton trade, the enthusiasm seemed to increase, until at Manchester a small regiment was raised on the prince's behalf. From Manchester the army marched on to Derby. A second English army had its headquarters at Lichfield under the Duke of Cumberland. Wade had been marching southwards upon the other side of the hills and was perhaps two days' march in the rear. At Derby the hills ceased to be any obstacle, and there the small highland force lay between two English armies, each of which was numerically stronger. Meanwhile there was no sign of any rising in England to help the invaders. The English Jacobites looked on in amazement and waited to see the result of this bold venture. The prince was now as ever for boldness, still in favor of continuing the march on London, and at table at Derby he discussed the question how he should enter London, on horseback or on foot, in Highland or in Lowland garb. Derby is only a hundred and twenty-seven miles from London, and by quick marches he could have kept ahead both of Wade and Cumberland. George II was gathering upon Finchley Common, a third army, with the guards for a nucleus, and this he was to command in person. This army, however, was not ready, but in course of formation. 
the prince hoped that a victory won, perhaps on Finchley Common, might have the same effect on the metropolis of England that the victory at Prestonpans had on Edinburgh. But he would have found George a very different antagonist from Cope, and London much less disposed to be friendly than Edinburgh, whilst behind him he would have had two powerful armies close at his heels. End of section 25